0: I'd encourage you to turn to Isaiah chapter 54, Isaiah 54, if you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles underneath uh, the seats in front of you, and we would encourage you to take one of those out, Isaiah 54, talking about surprising reversals, surprising reversals. This is a beautiful place in uh, the uh, Gospel, as we say, of Isaiah, uh, explaining just what's going to happen when they return from exile, when they rebuild Jerusalem. And ultimately, as we'll say in this uh, sermon a few different times, the ultimate uh, look at this is uh, really when Christ returns and a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem. Comes into existence. And we'll, we'll explain that as we go. Isaiah 52, verse 1, in this this whole section that we're in, started out with this, this word. And if you remember when we were talking about it, you know, wake up, people, awake, awake, clothe yourself with strength. Put on the garments of splendor, O Jerusalem. And in verse 3 of that, that same chapter, it says that Zion is going to be redeemed, and that means to be bought back, to be brought out of slavery, punishment paid for. It's been paid, and how was it paid? Isaiah 53 explains how it was paid, how Jerusalem, how Zion is redeemed. There's going to come one a servant of the Lord, who will pay Zion's price, pay Zion's penalty, who will die, as we had seen in the last three weeks in our journey through Isaiah 53. The Redeemer is Christ. The Redeemer is Christ, who would come seven centuries later Pay the ultimate price for Zion and of all people, pay the price of redemption. He was pierced for our transgressions, right? He was crushed for our iniquities there in Isaiah 53. The punishment that, that brought us peace, it was on Him. And by His wounds, we are healed. Another phrase that many of us know. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, each have turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. It was the Lord's will to crush Him, cause Him to suffer, and then to rise from the dead, to be victorious. And the victor's plunder is who? us. We we are the ones that he said that's that's my prize. It's an amazing thought that redemption in Christ's blood that we just celebrated in communion. And so we go further now into looking at what Zion, this glorious city is going to be and the big things that come from this. Jesus had come and now he's died and he's risen again and he's ascended to heaven. And you know what you need to be ready for? Some big things. Some big things. It's going to get really, really big, as it says in this section of Scripture. Zion itself is going to be huge. Glorious. That's the context of what we're looking at. And then skipping to next week, give you a little preview. We, we get a beautiful gospel invitation in chapter 55. Come, all of you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come and buy and eat without money and without cost. Why spend yourselves on what doesn't satisfy in your labor or what is not bread? Listen, listen to me. Eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Feast on the gospel of Christ. Feast on what he's done for you. But that's next week. Well, Isaiah wants to share with us a picture of a surprising reversal that when we understand that picture, it makes sense for him to say, come to the waters and be satisfied. This is what it's going to look like. This is the surprising reversal. And it starts there in chapter 54, right in verse 1. Let me just read the first three verses for us. Shout for joy, O barren woman who has not given birth. Break forth into joy, shouting and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For more numerous are the sons of the desolate one than the sons of the married woman, says Yahweh. Enlarge the place of your tent stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your pegs, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your seed will possess nations and will resettle the desolate cities. We can actually go even a little bit further. Do not be afraid, for you will not be put to shame. And do not feel dishonored, for you will not be humiliated, but you will forget the shame of your virginity and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. Now, if you just landed on this section of Scripture without understanding what had gone before and what's going to come after, you would look at this and read it and go, I have no clue what this is about. This seems kind of weird in our context today, but the image that we see here is is that of God, the faithful husband that's forgiving Israel, who was the unfaithful wife, restoring her to a a place of blessing. Isaiah used this marriage image before in chapter 50. He uses it again later in chapter 62. Jeremiah used it in Jeremiah chapter 3, and it's important themes in both Hosea and Ezekiel. The, The nation was married to God, to Yahweh, at Mount Sinai. But the nation had committed adultery by turning to other gods. And the Lord had to abandon her temporarily. However, the prophets promise that Israel would be restored when the Messiah comes and establishes His kingdom was going to come true. And we see this this restoration that's going to happen. And for one thing, it's a restoration there in verse 1. If you look at verse 1, the first part of verse 1, it's a restoration to joy and an occasion for singing. It's a surprising reversal. It wouldn't make any sense when you really look on it from the outside. The people had no business being redeemed by God because the fact they ran away from him. It's the same for our lives. We have run away from God at different times in our lives before you were a believer. And if you honestly look at where you were at, you have to answer, I don't deserve his faithfulness to me because I certainly wasn't faithful to him. You see how this works in in what this picture is doing here. Isaiah is a prophet of song, actually. He mentions songs and singing more than 30 times in his book. The immediate occasion for this joy is the deliverance from captivity that we're going to see here soon for the Israelites. But the ultimate fulfillment is when the Redeemer comes to Zion and the nation is born anew. As a side note, I know not everyone likes singing, but as a Christian, you better get used to it. It's dripping through the pages of the gospel, uh, of the book of Revelation. We're going to be doing what it said in Psalm 148 there. We're going to be praising His name. And we should be praising His name right now for what He's done for us. The restoration here is to fruitfulness. And we see here in these first three verses that the nation will increase and need more space. And so, it's that picture of a tent. How many of you have gone tent camping The rest of you really haven't missed much. (laughs) I'm no, I'm kidding. kidding. I I I think it's fun. I actually, but when your family increases, what do you have to do with that tent? You chuck it and get a bigger one. All right? That's that's the picture of what's going on here. The three now, by the way, have you ever noticed that the manufacturers of tents lie? They lie through their teeth. A four to five person tent does not hold four to five people. It holds two. And maybe some other stuff. It only holds four or five people if they do not flip over overnight. Anyway. It's that picture. It's like the tent is going to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The nation had been diminished by the invasion of Babylon, and God would help them multiply again. And Israel may have felt like, as it says here, that barren woman unable to have children, but she will increase by the glory of God. God will do for her what he did for Sarah and Abraham. And those tents are going to need to be stretched out. And the desolate cities that had been just wasted by the captivity will be inhabited again. And I will tell you, it is interesting to go to Israel now and see a tiny little picture of what will happen in the future. Mark Twain wrote in the 1800s of his trip to Israel and he called it a desolate ugly place because the Ottoman Empire and all of the different things up through even the 18 early 1900s they stripped the land bare completely bare no trees no produce nothing It was ugly marshes and just destroyed. And then in the 1940s, Israel became a nation. And things changed. And you go there today, and some of you have been and some of you will be going in the future. You go through the middle part of Israel northern part of Israel it is one of the most beautiful places on the planet and it is lush with produce and 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 food and and water and you're just like this place is incredible it's it's really the closest thing that you can picture for it is all the agricultural beautiful areas of California that's really what it looks like now And that's the picture of what God is saying, this is what I'm going to do for you. This this is how much it's going to change. He was going to bless them. And he is going to also, as Paul says, as he borrows this first verse in Galatians chapter 4, he's going to do that with the church as well. Even as God blessed Sarah, the Jewish remnant with children, and, and enlarging the tent of who they are, He is going to bless the church. His church. Christ, the head of His church. And you know what? Sometimes it doesn't seem like it's happening, right? Sometimes it just doesn't seem like it's happening, it feels desolate. It feels like you you see the the culture that we're mired and all of the junk going on. You see uh, if, if you even look at churches churches that aren't following God's word and you see all of these different things going on and you go like I don't know about this but what I can tell you is that God's moving. And there are Millions of people accepting the Lord every year in this world. There's a little children's organization, CEF, Child Evangelism Fellowship that I get to be a part of. Worldwide, over 15 million kids last year accepted the Lord in those little clubs Oh, God's moving. His church is growing. Satan's losing. Even in a microcosm of this church right here. Take a look around everyone. This is a three day weekend. This is this is not supposed to be a day where a ton of people show up for church and man it's a it's a good crew people in here today. Is West Hills Church alive? Is God blessing it? And we're just a dinky, teeny little part of it. Teeny, teeny little part. And Paul is stretching this out, and he's saying he's going to bless the church, and, and he actually stretches it out, quotes Isaiah to stretch out what this means, and he's saying because of this, there are, there's kind of like two ways to serve God. As according to Paul in Galatians chapter 4, one way is to draw on the energy of our own good intentions, and I think we're consistent enough in what we teach around here. How well is your good, your good intentions going to do in trying to serve God? Yeah, not, it's not going to be consistent, it's not going to be good over a long term. Because you're trying to draw on the energy of just who you are without God. But man, tap into the Holy Spirit. Let the Spirit be in charge. Rely on God's power acting in our weakness. The power of the Holy Spirit may seem impractical, but that's what makes us fruitful. The gospel announces that Christ took our failure on his cross, where shame ended, where shame died, and he sent us his spirit. So we will thrive forever. That the tent that we are, who resides in our tent as a person today, the spirit. And as the Spirit helps us grow in Him and become more like Him, our influence for Him does what? It grows. It's the same same picture here. And Isaiah's saying really to us, yeah, you're, you're barren, but that doesn't matter anymore. You can live in expectancy that God will use you. God's plan for His people is for more and more people to be influenced by us for His glory. And that's a miracle. And joy and singing should flow from our surprise and our relief. That that someone else that we used to be, that barren person, no longer exists. Yes, as that barren person, we have, we have nothing to be proud about. But we're not that barren person anymore, amen? With Christ in us, we grow. And literally, we should throw our heads back and laugh with delight over our spiritual family multiplying, not by our power, but by His power. The gospel changes everything. And yes, then we look with honesty at what's going on in our lives and the the tragedies and the highs and the lows that happen. But you know how we look at it? We look at it with joy. A cheerful power working for a greater glory, His glory. We're a part of something beautiful. Improbable. Beyond who we are. And as it says here, then, in chapter 54, verse 4, he's saying, you know, this reversal's happening. And verse 4, what did it say there? It said, do not be afraid. We'll get to that phrase in a second, but just let's read through verse 10. Do not be afraid for you will not be put to shame. Do not feel dishonored for you will not be humiliated, but you will forget the shame of your virginity and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more for your husband is your maker, whose name is Yahweh of hosts and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel who is called the God of all the earth. For Yahweh has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In a flood of fury I hide my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness I will have compassion on you, says Yahweh your Redeemer. For this is like the days of Noah to me. When I swore that the waters of Noah would not overflow the earth again, so I have sworn that I will not be furious with you, nor will I rebuke you. For the mountains may be moved and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says Yahweh, who has compassion on you. This is meant to give Israel, in Israel's restoration, in our restoration, it is meant it should and it will give you confidence. This is one of those fear not promises. Do not be afraid. There's no need to be afraid according to what is said here. Because it says, verse 4, Basically what it's getting down to, your sins are forgiven. You will not be put to shame. You will not feel dishonored, for you will not be humiliated. Well, what had they done? They had run to other gods. They had sinned. You'll be forgiven. Why should they fear the future when God has wiped out the sins of the past? Yes, the people had sinned. They had sinned greatly against God, but He forgave them, and it was to be a new beginning. They, for, they could forget the shame, the shame of the sin as, as the nation had sinned incredibly. Another reason for confidence that's embedded in this in verses 5 and 6 is, that, is the steadfast love of God. He is not going to destroy the people He created for His glory. He is their Redeemer and cannot sell them into the hands of the enemy permanently. He's their husband. He won't break His covenant promises. Yes, they were unfaithful. Israel had forsaken her husband. He only temporarily abandoned them. He only gave heard the opportunity to see what it was like to live in a land where people really worshipped false gods all the time. It's one of those things where you let someone go do something that you know is going to be awful for them, but it's like, okay, here you go. God would and did call Israel back And they were no longer the wife deserted. God did not give up on her. God does not give up on us. Third reason for confidence embedded in here in verses 7 through 10 is just the fact that there's a promise of God. God did show anger over their sin God had to. He's a just God. But now that refining fire was over at that time and they were returning to their land. He promised with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on you. And what this means for us too today is that whenever we rebel against God, Whenever we refuse to listen to his warnings, whenever we sin and fall short, he will refine us. He will punish. And it's done in love. And we see that specifically in Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 12, and you have forgiven the forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he flogs every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? I'll just pause there and That's the opposite of our world today now, right? Oh, don't discipline me. Don't discipline your kids. They may dislike you later. You know what? If you don't discipline your kids, they will definitely dislike you later. Because they'll be crazy people. It's one way to guarantee it. But if you are without discipline, verse 8 of Hebrews 12, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our benefit so that we may share His holiness. And all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, right? But sorrowful, but to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, God will not permit His children to sin and get away with it. He took Israel, put them into captivity, and said, all right, guys, this is what it's like to worship false gods. This is what it's like to live in the land where that's where it's all at. He refines them, brings them back, and what is birthed out of the nation? Christ. Christ. The purpose is to bring us to repentance that enables us to produce this peaceful fruit of righteousness. Who is the absolute picture of righteousness? It's Christ. They had to go through that to get back to being in a position where Christ could come from them. When God disciplines His children, it may hurt but it's always for the good of that person and His glory. And that's what we see here. And God kept His promise all the way through. We see that in the uh, verse nine. He talks about Noah. He says, what did I do during the flood? Kept my promise. And I'm going to keep my promises. He always has. So you can depend on his love, his covenant, his mercy. Let's finish this out in verse 11 as we continue here. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, Behold, I will lay your stones in anemone, and your foundations I will set in sapphires. Moreover, I will make your battlements of rubies, and your gates of crystal, and your entire wall of precious stones. All of your sons will be taught of Yahweh, and the peace of your sons will be great, and righteousness you will be established. You will be far from oppression, for you will not fear, and from terror, for it will not come near you. If anyone fiercely attacks you, it will not be for me. Whoever attacks you will fail, will fall because of you. Behold, I myself have created the craftsman who blows the fire of coals and brings out a weapon for its work, and I have created the the bringer of ruin to to the bringer of ruin to, to wreak destruction. No weapon have you guys heard this one before? No weapon that is formed against you will succeed, and every tongue that accuses you in judgment will, you will condemn. That is the inheritance of the slaves of Yahweh, and their righteousness is from me, declares Yahweh. You see, not only will the captives be set free, the nation restored, and the city of Jerusalem will be rebuilt. Now, once again, if you've seen Jerusalem, and even during that time frame where Jerusalem was rebuilt, it certainly didn't look like that. So, what is that a picture of? The idea of there's the immediate fulfillment that Jerusalem was to be rebuilt, but also the ultimate fulfillment that's found in Revelation 21, verse 18. When Jerusalem is measured, in its wall, 144 cubits, according to human measurements, which also are the angelic measurements. And the material of the wall is jasper, and the city was pure gold, like pure glass. Verses 19 through 20 go through all of these different crystals And the twelve gates with the twelve pearls, each of the gates with a single pearl, the street and the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I love verses 22 and 23. And I saw no sanctuary in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its sanctuary. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp Is the Lamb. Yeah, the the, the remnant rebuilt the temple and the city under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest. So it's a different Joshua, just so you know, there. Joshua the high priest, Ezra the scribe, Nehemiah the wall builder, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. But the restored Jerusalem was nothing like what was described here in Isaiah, and what is ultimately described in Revelation, because that beautiful city, we have to wait until the Lord returns. And then every citizen of Jerusalem will know the Lord, as it says there, and the city will be free from terror and war. Jesus quoted the first part of verse 13 in John chapter 6. You can write that down and look at it later. In verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and he quotes there, and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. If you read in the context of John chapter 6, beginning in verse 34, you will see that Jesus was speaking about people coming to the Father. All that the Father gives me will come to me. People come to him that are taught of God. When I say, hey, 15 million children accepted Christ last year in the ministry of Child Evangelism Fellowship, you know what they were taught? God's Word. It wasn't just a bunch of feelings and thoughts about how people think God is. Those kids were taught God's Word. The reality of sin the reality of what Christ did to cleanse sin, the reality of what happens when you accept Christ, the reality of a fruitful life that happens when you live in Him. That all happens because people are taught the Word of God. And they go, oh, wow, the Spirit uses that, draws them, and as I started this whole Message. it produces a surprising reversal. Some of you may know the name Charles Wesley. He was ordained into ministry after college and he and his brother John, the Wesley brothers, set out to evangelize the American colonies of Georgia and region. So they came over here from England and were doing that and that they were pummeled with opposition pain and they actually returned defeated to England after one year John Wesley wrote in his journal I went to America to convert the Indians but oh who will convert me he was he was just doubting his faith and actually figured out that he wasn't a believer and it really turned out to be a pivotal question in both of their lives. Charles West Wesley dove more deeply into Scripture for his own spiritual understanding and nourishment. And then rather than using the Bible reading as just discipline or a means with which he could earn God's favor, he actually learned from it. And it was after reading Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians that Charles Wesley's eyes were opened to the truth of justi- justification by faith. And all of a sudden, he's found the doorway to peace with God. And he, after going on a missionary trip, accepts Christ. That's what he says. And this is what's really interesting about this. Two days after his conversion, he wrote his first hymn, celebrating the joy that filled his heart. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise. Not bad for a guy that had been a Christian for two days. It's a surprising reversal. And as the years passed, Charles Wesley wrote many songs that we still sing today and way more that we don't. In his lifetime, because of that surprising reversal when he accepted Christ, he wrote 6,500 hymns on every conceivable subject. Why? Because God radically changed him. God had taken hold of him as a sinner and said, yes, you're barren, you are, you are empty, but I will redeem you through the blood of the Lamb. I will call you. You will learn of me through my word. You will accept me as God, as Savior, as the one who you will give glory to the rest of your days, and I will give you increase, and it's not about money. It's not about status. It's not about any of that stuff. It's about the increase of knowing him and living for him and when you do that, amazing things happen to the people around you over time. And in the applications of all of this as we close today, nestled between chapter 53 and chapter 55 here in 54, this glorious city that's going to happen where redeemed people live forever. And if you are here today and you have not given your heart to the Lord, my encouragement is to run into that city now. Come into the kingdom now by repentance and faith in Christ. Believe in Him. Flee to Christ while there's still time. Flee to Christ now because you do not know about tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Look to Christ crucified. Look to his shed blood. Look to him on the cross. And as you do, understand that you are the sheep that went astray. And the Lord has died for you. By faith, find forgiveness in Christ. And you will also, as... You then grow in Christ, and all of us in this room, we know as people that are here today as believers at West Hills Church, and of course, many believers all over the world, salvation is a community experience because Christ is the head of what? The church. Christ is the head of the church today, yesterday, and tomorrow. But both in the old Jerusalem and the present church, we cannot imagine the actual dizzying city of God that's awaiting us. And what happens to many of us in our lives is we accept Christ, and then we go, whoop! We kind of just land in this level of mediocrity in our lives. live in the promise of Christ. Live in the promise of God, of a promise of a costly and lasting renovation. God will replace the church's poverty, your poverty, and I'm talking of the Spirit, with His wealth of His Spirit. The turbulence of your life He will switch to security. The despair in your life, He will switch to comfort because it's all His doing. It's His resources. And His resources are endless. What are our resources? They're tiny, and they go... And as Isaiah explains the literal reality behind this city and the image of this jeweled city, God's promise to us is not mere survival, but His blessing rolling on from generation to generation. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. Why? Because of what He does and what He continues to do. His grace forms a... Righteous people, as we see there in verse 14. In righteousness you will be established. Isn't that cool? In righteousness you will be established. All who hate those within or without will attack to what? To their own destruction. We have nothing to fear. Who is our defender? The Creator. Our God. Our Savior. That's what it says. No weapon that is formed against you will succeed. How many weapons will succeed? None. Zero. The Creator is our defender. And who can defeat the Creator? No one. And as Scripture says, He has lost no one He's called. It's pretty good news. No weapon forged against you can prevail when you are in Him. And as I close this sermon in prayer in just a second. We took the Lord's Supper earlier. But I really encourage you, and the reason, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons that I believe it's very important for us to take communion every single time we're together is to remember. Remember what He's done. Remember the feast that's going to happen when we're with Him. Can you imagine communing with him forever? We're going to enjoy that in this beautiful city. And we get to enjoy that today in this beautiful church and in many beautiful bodies of believers all over the world. It's a picture of what is to come. And it reminds us of what it costs to get there and when you read the book of Acts it is very clear that every time the believers gathered together they remembered that as the center of why they were there and we need to do the same and that is why we do that so those are the application points there today and as I said next week we're going to hear a cry for a call to come to him and I encourage you to invite people to be here that need to hear that call people who are thirsty go out on a limb this this week and go hey I would love for you to go to church with me next week and you know what they're going to hear? If you're thirsty, if this world is dry, come to the waters that satisfy. And and that's that's next week. So take one of those little white cards, take about 10 of them, and just be prepared for God to use you in enlarging His church. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You.